And we see right at the very start of this passage, this story, what the intention of this gathering is all about. Because it says, he, Jesus, was being carefully watched. The host had organised this meal, this meal with Jesus as the guest of honour on the Sabbath. And this was done on purpose. What did Jesus love to do on the Sabbath? He loved to heal people. We see in Luke four examples of Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 4, we see him healing Peter's mother and casting out demons. In chapter 6, when he heals this man with the withered hand. And then in chapter 14 of Luke, Jesus heals a woman who's been bent over for years. So the Pharisees are laying a trap for Jesus. They want to see Jesus do something. They can say, aha, see, he's a sinner. He doesn't follow our rules. And Jesus is kind of walking into this minefield. It's as though, like, um, a conservative is invited to Q&A on a panel. You know it's going to go wrong. It's going to go bad. Jesus is walking into this trap. And we're going to find that this not, may not go the way they think it will go well for Jesus. But we're going to see Jesus turn the tables on this dinner party. He's going to confront these religious leaders. He's going to turn their understanding of what the kingdom of God totally over, upside down. So the guests gather. Maybe as we've looked at this in the last few weeks, they've gathered in this courtyard inside this, the, the door that leads into their building, gathered there before they make their way to these reclining couches around the table. And then surprise, surprise, who should appear but a man who's sick? Surprise. A man who is sick. It's as though the host had arranged for this man to be right there so they could trap Jesus. This man, the Bible says, is, trapped, is suffering from abnormal swelling of the body. Some translations call it, um, refer to it as dropsy. Today we call it edema, um, fluid retention. Something is happening in his body, something probably very seriously that is causing fluids to build up in his body. It was easy for Jesus to spot amongst this gathering of people. The trap for Jesus was set. The bait was this man with a disease. The Pharisees figured out they could not, Jesus could not resist to offer a healing to this man in his disease. And when he did, they'd have him right where they wanted him. Jesus, you're a sinner. But Jesus is one step ahead of the Pharisees. Before he does anything to this man, for this man, at the end of verse 3 we see Jesus says to the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now it's the Pharisees who are trapped. If they answer yes, they'll be accused of, of not living up to the principles that they follow and what they expect everybody else in the Jewish faith to follow. If they say, no, you can't heal him on the Sabbath, 
They'll be accused of, of hypocrisy and, and um, inhumane and sensitive attitude towards this, this poor man. And they're trapped. So what do they do? It says in, in verse 3. Sorry, um, the beginning of verse 4. They remained silent. They do a Brendan Murphy, Australia's top medical officer. When he was asked that question, for you to find a woman, rather than incriminate himself against the, the radical gender ideologues, he says, I'll take that, note, that question on notice. He remains silent. He daren't open his mouth because then he'll be attacked. And that's what the Pharisees do here. They remain silent. So Jesus heals the man, restores him back to health, sends him on his way. But Jesus isn't done with the Pharisees yet. He's just getting started. Verse 5. Then he asked one of them, if one of you have a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, Will you not immediately pull it out? Sabbath regulations allowed for that to happen. If, you, if your animal was trapped on the Sabbath, the law said you could rescue your animal. Once again, the Pharisees have nothing to say. If they didn't allow Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath, they could be charged with saying, you think more of animals than you do of children. So Jesus has them in a corner. He's trapped them. And an awkward silence descends over this room. A quiet, uneasy tension fills the house. And then we see as Jesus watches these guests coming in and taking their place around these tables on these couches, he noticed something going on. People are bullying their way to get to the top of the table. To be at that place of honour. Oh, I'm, I'm so important. I've got to sit up here by the, by the guest, this place of honour. I'm not going to sit by this drafty door. I want to be up with the, with the host. And so Jesus prompts, this prompts Jesus to tell another story. The story about what a host, a guest coming in and wanting to be at the top of the table and then discovering the host pushes them back down, lower in the table, lower in the, the ranking. And Jesus says, how bad it would be if you start off down there and then let the host elevate you up if that's what the host wants to do. That's criticising the guests as they come into this dinner. But then he moves to the host who's only inviting those he can benefit from. Inviting those that he'll get something back from in return. In Jesus' day, if someone invited you to a house, Lord, um, you would expect them to invite you back. If they invited you to a wedding, they would, you would expect them to invite you. If, you. if you invited them to a wedding, you would expect them to invite you to one of their weddings. It was just this reciprocal hospitality. So two things I want us to focus on this morning as we unpack these and the next story that Jesus tells at this dinner party. And the first one is God's guest list. 
Who does God include at his table? Jesus is saying to this host of this meal, don't invite your friends, don't invite your neighbours or your relatives. If you invite them, they're just going to invite you back. They're just going to to repay you for what you've done. You're not really practising hospitality, Jesus is saying. What you're doing is exchange hospitality. And that doesn't reflect the God or how God has called us to live. It's not an expression of how God is like. And so Jesus says in verse 13 and 14, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Not with returned hospitality, because these people can't afford that. You'll be blessed in eternity. Caring for the poor, including the poor, those who can't give anything in return, is something close to the heart of God. God cares deeply about them. And he calls us to include them in our lives as well. God cares deeply about the people you include in your life. Old Testament prophets were constantly calling people back, calling people's back to, to caring for the poor, to caring for those God cares about. Micah is a well-known prophet, or the, at least these passages in Micah are, are well-known, or parts of it at least, where Micah says, people saying to God, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? For us we'd say, shall I, I give thousands of dollars? Shall I give tens of thousands of dollars? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Th- th- these are the most expensive, extravagant things that people can think, is that what God wants from me? If I give that, will the Lord be pleased? And here's the answer. He is showing you, O mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God is deeply concerned about who we include in our lives. Now this just isn't about feeding the poor. The people in Jesus' day had systems in place where they could, how they could take care of those who were poor in their community. Ways to, to provide for them. Jesus is calling them not just to feed or to provide for the poor, but to invite, to include them in their lives. Last week we heard from Charlene about the ministry of the well. And, and I, I love this ministry. It's not just providing groceries to those who are finding it difficult to provide for them, their own um, food supplies and things that they need, people that are struggling financially. It's also a ministry of sitting down with the guests, sitting with them, spending time with them, entering their lives, getting them into your lives, having morning tea, having conversations, meeting them where they are, being a friend, being inviting, showing Jesus in lives, and not, just, not even words, but just lives. 
In this book, A Meal with Jesus, this is the book that we have kind of based some of the ideas of the sermon series on. Tim Chester talks about his wife uh, inviting a work colleague to come to their house for an evening meal one Saturday. Tim and his wife live in uh, West Yorkshire in England and had a couple of Christian friends with them, staying with them, and this work colleague came along. Had a meal that's that quintessential British takeaway curry um, at their house. And they all sat down to watch an episode of X Factor, the, the music talent show. And the next day, the work colleague sent a text to Tim's wife and she said, your home was a place of refuge. A few weeks later, she started attending a Bible, um, reading the Bible with Tim and his wife and this relationship developed. Faith was shared. Someone became part of the kingdom because of what they had done. God is deeply concerned about who we include in our lives. So things are getting pretty intense in our story in Luke 14 around this, in this Pharisee's house. Jesus has managed to intentionally and personally insult every person in this room. The dinner party is fast becoming a disaster. The host, and I'm sure his guests, had Jesus in their sights when they set out this invitation. They laid a trap but suddenly the tables are reversed. They're now in the firing line. They're being roasted. Not that way. Um, everyone's looking down at their, ta- at their plates, too scared to look around the room or catch Jesus' eye. And then some quick-thinking guest, a friend of this Pharisee, pipes up with a statement that hopefully, at least in his eyes, are going to ease the tension. A diversion but really just a throwaway word, empty words, throwaway comment. Verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Nothing to do with what's been going on in that, in that um, conversation. This is a reference to the Isaiah passage I mentioned a couple of weeks ago where God hosts this banquet for all of those followers of Jesus. At the, this, this, this banquet in the, in the new kingdom when the return of, of Jesus comes, the Messiah. And this statement of this man breaks the silence. And straight away people start nodding in agreement. See, this man is expressing this, this confidence that everyone in that room had that they would be at that banquet. They were the righteous ones. So in essence, this man is saying, blessed are people like us. Blessed are the likes of us who will eat at this feast of the kingdom of God. And the, bet, the, the, the guests around the table begin to relax. They take a breath. Ah, yes, blessed indeed. Amen. Now let's get on with this meal. Brother Benjamin, could you pass me the olives? And Jesus responds, responds to this statement with a story. A story that's almost to say to these people, you think you're going to that banquet? Well, think again. Verse 16. A 
certain man, this is the story Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. What's going on here? Well, in Jesus' day, um, when you invited someone to a feast or a banquet, it was, it was a two-part invitation. The first invitation was kind of like the save a dates that people use now where save this date, I've got a wedding coming up or I've got a 40th birthday party, save the date. And so you put in your calendar and wait for the invitation. Only in Jesus' day, that save the date was much more official, much more binding. A firm commitment. The people of the, of the, in the story would have received that first invitation. Servants would have come around telling them this, this event is on. Our master's going to throw this great banquet. And the host would have said, it's going to be on Saturday night. Can you make it? Sure, we'll be there. Commitment. Now for us today, we can prepare a dinner pretty quickly. Like we did last week, you get takeaway. That works it much easier. We can pick up stuff from the supermarket. We can grab some, feed out, some, some meat out of the freezer. Pop it in the oven, throw some things together in the Thermomix. I think that's what you do. We, we don't have one, but I think that's what you do. And then, hey presto, the dinner's made. It's all done. In Jesus' day, the meat was out the back of the house, still walking around on the grass. He had to get things ready. He needed to know how many people were going to come. Then I'll know how many animals to deal with. And when everything was ready, he'd go out to his guest a second time with the servants or himself, those who'd already RSVP'd and said, come, the dinner's ready. And they'd drop what they were doing straight away, go inside, clean up, put on their best party clothes and head off for the feast. But these people are coming up with all manner of excuses, well, three of them, but a range of excuses. A calculated insult to the host that accepted this first invitation. Now they're coming up with lame excuses of why they can't come. Someone has described excuses or an excuse as a half-baked reason cooked with a lie. And that's an accurate description of what's going on here. Three lame excuses. Kent Hughes has labelled these the real estate excuse, the bovine, or I've called it the farming excuse, and the third, the nuptial excuse. Let's look at the first one, the real estate excuse. Verse 18. I've just bought a field, the man said, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Come on. When did, when did you, you go and buy a field and then the field get up and run away? It's going to be there tomorrow. It's not going to go anywhere. A, a, a crazy excuse. I mean, the, the other option could be the man had bought the field sight unseen. I mean, who does that in real estate? Grant's not here. I can't ask him that. Um, but who on earth does that? Even when we have um, realestate.com, when we can see these great examples and illustrations and maps and everything about the property, you still go and check it out. This, this is a lame excuse. 
But he is polite. He does say, excuse me, please excuse me. But it's a phony excuse if ever there was an excuse. The next excuse, the farming excuse. I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Five yoke of oxen, that's ten cattle. And he hasn't even tried them out yet. Can they pull anything? But he too was polite. Please excuse me. And then the third excuse, this nuptial excuse. Verse 20, I just got married so I can't come. That's it. This man doesn't even ask to be excused. He's alluding to a Jewish law in Scripture. So he probably thinks, "Mm, I can get away with this. This This is scriptural. This is the law. The Scripture he's referring to or alluding to is Deuteronomy 24 verse 5. That says that when a man is married, he can take a year off to be with his wife, to get to know his wife. A year off and he's even exempt from military service. A feast is hardly like going to war. These are flimsy, half-baked reasons cooked in a lie. And they're absurd. Absurd as maybe these excuses students might make when they can't get their papers in time. I had a flossing accident. My keyboard must have been disconnected to my computer. I ate my USB hard drive my USB drive for safekeeping and now it won't pass. <laughs> Russians hacked my first draft. I had to go to a kinder reunion or global warming. Now the host of the party is now angry. Very angry. The people that he's prepared this feast for have rejected it. And so he says to his servants in verse 21, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the the blind and the lame. Jesus the Messiah comes and the religious leaders of the day reject him. Who are the ones who accept him? Who are the ones who accept his ministry? The ones who accept his invitation? It's people like these in the story. The blind man. Jesus, son of David, he called out. Have mercy on me. The prostitutes, the poor, the marginalised, the lepers, the crippled. The tax collectors, the woman at the well. All hearing Jesus' message hearing or experiencing his grace, accepting his invitation. And that's what the gospel does. The kinds of people it reaches out to, people who know they have needs, who recognise they need help. General William Booth um, was the founder of Salvation Army, an organisation or church, but also an organisation that does a great work in evangelism as well as um, social action amongst um, the poor and the marginalised. And there was a poem written about Booth's death death after he died, uh, which was good, um, entitled General Booth Enters Heaven. Now it's 19th century English, so it's a little bit um, unusual to to our ears, but I hope you'll get the, the message. Booth led boldly with his big brass drum 
Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The saints smiled gravely and they said, He's come. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Walking lepers followed rank on rank, lurching bravios from the ditches dank, drabs from the alleyways and drug fiends pale, mind still passion-ridden, soul powers frail. Vermin-eaten saints with mouldy breath, unwashed legions with the ways of death, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? These are the people God invites at his table. So who am I inviting? Who's at my table? Who am I including or excluding in my life? Verse 23 of Luke chapter 14. The master told his servants, go out, in the country roads and country lanes and compel the people to come in so my house will be filled. The invitations went out. Those with less, less standing in society had accepted the invitation and had come. The rooms were filling up, but it wasn't full. Jesus was saying the, man, the host wants his house to be full of guests. The reason God wants us to offer hospitality and to invite people into our lives, into our living spaces, is that his house might be full. Who we invite and who we exclude can be a visual representation of our own hearts. Remember the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan? The religious leaders of the day wouldn't go near this, this poor man beaten up and left for dead on the road in case they got contaminated, in case they were affected by the sinfulness of what he, what he was representing. So they left him lying on the road, in the road, roadside. It's the Samaritan, the outsider, the one the Jews thought would never make it to the kingdom of God, who comes along and who shows radical hospitality. He's the one Jesus commends. Chester, the author of this book we've been using, puts it this way, the table fellowship of Jesus with its ethic of grace rather than reciprocity was creating a new countercultural society in the midst of the empire, the Roman Empire. The behaviour Jesus demands would collapse the distance between rich and poor, insider and outsider. What if we were about throwing dinner parties? Barbecues in our backyards. Well, apart from today, probably not the sort of season that you might want to do that. But meals in our homes, inviting our neighbours, inviting our work colleagues, inviting our unsaved family members. We're called to follow Jesus into a broken world, to be just like him. Jesus, as we've seen as we go through the series, was a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. That's what the Pharisees called Jesus in a derogatory way. Yet Jesus welcomely embraces this label, happy to be called a friend of sinners. He ate with them. 
He identified with them. And in doing so, he was saying, these are my sort of people. For several years, Glenda and I have been supporting an Australian family serving in Ireland with pioneers. They've recently returned to Australia uh, for health reasons. But while they were in, in Ireland, particularly in the early days of, of early years that they were there with no evangelical um, church in their city, the way they reached people in their community was to invite people into their homes. Invite people in for meals. Neighbours. Families from the schools their kids went to. Friends from their kids' basket, uh, football teams. Inviting people into their lives. Living out Jesus around the kitchen table. Over a barbecue and beers in the backyard. At a picnic at the beach. And Ireland does have beaches. Um, table evangelism. And a little church exists today that meets in a community centre in the centre of the city formed from these invitations that went out to people around them. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is who are we inviting into our lives that they might come closer to the kingdom of God? What an opportunity we as the church, and I say as the big C, the church, have. A society around us is, is fragmenting and, and being divided by all sorts of issues. To be with people in their hurt, to sit with people in their isolation. We're hearing how so many people today are lonely because of all the last couple of years. Sitting with them, inviting them, come. You are welcome. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. When we sit with someone and eat with someone, we meet as equals. We share together, we affirm one another, and we enjoy each other's company. At the cross, God invites all of us, equals in our need of grace. And too often we tend to live our Christian lives separate from those around us and just together. We don't have an empty seat of welcome, inviting other people into that experience, that grace that we've received. Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't establish any ministries, any programs. He didn't put on any events. He just ate. He did normal, everyday things. He went to wedding feasts. He accepted dinner invitations. He met people where they were, doing what they did, going about their normal everyday lives at the side of a fishing boat, at a, at a tax collector's booth, beside a well. Hospitality is integral, integral to how we live as followers of Jesus, living just like him. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. This is what we do as Christians. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's good having Dennis and uh, Clarissa 
with us at the moment. For those who don't know, Janice and Clarissa, uh, they serve as missionaries in eastern Thailand and uh, are back here for a time. But you know, we don't, we can, we can all be missionaries. We don't have to get onto a plane and travel to some other country to be in missions. If you routinely share meals with others and you're passionate about Jesus, then you'll be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message lived out and spoken. But meals will create create this, this natural opportunity to share the message in a context that resonates powerfully with those that we are sharing with. And we really think about it, it's not that hard. Just invite people around and enjoy a meal together. You have to eat anyway, so why not share it with others? Jesus challenges us to take missions home, to invite others to the table. God has included us in his, on his guest list. Who are we going to include on ours? Our neighbours? The person down the street who lives on their own? The single mum? The person we pass every day walking their dog? The guy at work who swears like a trooper? The person at uni always sits on their own. Let's make up a guest list this week. Let's add these people to our list. Let's pray for them. Let's think of intentional ways that we can include them in our lives and maybe even invite them to our table. Let's love Jesus. Let's show Jesus to the people around us by including them, by inviting them, by adding them to our guest list. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us everything we need. You've given us Jesus. You've given us hope and life and forgiveness through him. And you've given us all the practical, physical things that we have as well. You've given us homes, you've given us resources, you've given us food. Father, you have blessed us with all these things. They're all from you. Lord, help us not to keep these things to ourselves. Help us see those around us, the crippled, the poor, the blind, those who are hungry spiritually, relationally, people who are in need of the restoration and the healing that only Jesus brings. Lord, you've called us to them. May we respond. May we respond in obedience and love. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.